Welcome to another episode of the Radical Parenting Podcast. My name is Tony Shawcross. Hey, I'm Kara Porbath. Every episode, Kara and I usually, uh, sometimes with other guests, read and review uh, a parenting book. Sometimes we do other things, but this this week, this episode, uh, we're, we've read a book called Montessori, The Science Behind the Genius by Angeline Stoll Lillard. So we're going to start, uh, here's the book, here's her page, montessori-science.org. Here's the book, third edition, on Amazon.com. We picked this book. Well, I've always been interested in Montessori philosophy. I have, I've been reaching out to people for book recommendations. And uh, a woman that I recommend, that I really respect here in Colorado, who used to run the Evergreens, the Montessori School of Evergreen here in Colorado, she read lots of Montessori books. And I asked her, if you just were to recommend one, which one would you recommend? And she recommended this one, said it's the most science-based, it's the best fit for, for you, Tony. It has the most like evidence. Um, it isn't just about the kind of cult of Montessori. It's about like studies about where Montessori works, where it doesn't work. Um, and so I really, I really appreciated the book and, and, and enjoyed reading it. We're going to start by just talking about why, why we were interested in Montessori. Then we're going to do kind of like a Cliff's Notes version of just going through the, the whole, the key messages of each chapter of the book. And then we're going to dig a little deeper into the topics that specifically interested Kara or myself. And Kara, you said you kind of, you started reading this like our other books, but then your brain kind of shifted away from like mom to like teacher, right? Yeah, definitely. Since I'm a violin teacher and viola teacher and have been for a long time, I'd started going into pedagogy mode of, you know, the the pedagogy of this from a teacher's perspective. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I definitely was reading it from a father's perspective. I'm I'm not a teacher and don't ever have any real intention to be, unless I'm lucky enough to do a little homeschooling. But um it really is so relevant to just parents too and how you order your your room and how you interact with your child. So I'm excited to hop into it. And before we do, I wanted to share one more thing on my screen. So I've joined a whole bunch of like mostly moms groups, some parents groups, but it just turns out that most of the groups um, that exist on Facebook and other places are moms groups. Uh, this is this Montessori at home group that I joined on Facebook. And I just wanna read this post from, from earlier uh, this month. This woman said, every once in a while, someone asked the question, why Montessori? I've been visiting other moms groups just for common motherhood, and I've been venturing out on some non-Montessori groups. And what always strikes me the most is the lack of respect for children. It's usually subtle, sometimes not subtle at all, but it makes me incredibly sad to know some kids are treated like this. No, you don't have to do Montessori to treat your kids with respect, but at least with Montessori, you know it's a foundation a pillar, a building block, a strength. And even though this group has its occasional discussions and arguments, there still seems to be a level of respect I don't often see in other mother groups. It's like we practice the term respect on a deeper level because we made a conscious decision to treat our kids this way. And no, I don't think I'm better than non-Montessori moms. I'm just different because I choose to be. So hi to all Montessori at home members. Respect is a humongous reason why I chose Montessori. So for me, this is why I'm interested in Montessori. I didn't set out to follow or learn about Montessori. I didn't know the difference between it and Waldorf or, or other or other movements, you know, um, and Amelia Regatta, any of the other kind of like schooling movements. But my nonprofit got hired to produce training videos for, for a Montessori school and fundraising videos. And 
We got to work deeply with the teachers about why they do certain things the way they do. And all of it just made sense to me. All of it really resonated with my desire to honor the individual human that my child is rather than try and mold them into some vision of what I want them to be and just to help them blossom into whoever they are kind of born to be. Um, it's really just born out of a deep respect for, for children and for children's freedoms and children's rights and children's autonomy. Um, so that's why I wanted to, to read it. Cool. Anything you want to add there? Um, Kara? I think this is an interesting book for us to review because there's so much that really aligns with radical parenting and with some of the other books we've read, like Peter Gray's free to learn about student choice and, and, um, um, interest and in, intrinsic motivation and all of that and respect for children's, you know, concentration and, and learning on their own. And there's some things that really diverge, you know, as far as, you know, the high level of order in the Montessori classroom and the, the, the way that the, the materials are so carefully designed and there's a precise order and technique that you work with them. And so there's, uh, you know, some similarities and some differences that I think are going to be really interesting to talk about. Yeah, I think, I think they have a common desire for freedom for the children. But Montessori wants this invisible structure behind that freedom so that the freedom that the children explore into is very kind of pre-arranged and lots of subtle psychological ideas. So we're going to, again, start with just here's an overview of, of the chapters of the, of the book from, from Google Books. And we're just going to give some of the like, Cliff's notes for each of them. So uh, first is this answer to the crisis in education. All the books we've read about education, and please just chime in throughout, Kara. All the books we've read about education are acknowledging that kind of the original and old school structure of schools hasn't kept up with our learning and understanding of the way children's brains work, children's brains develop. It doesn't align with the studies we found about how children learn best. Um, a lot of teachers, and I, my, I come from a family of teachers, a lot of teachers... Um, you know, are kind of keeping up with this, but some things about like the basic structure of our education system, um, teaching the tests and evaluation and stuff, it's just kind of at odds with what we're learning about how children learn best. We'll get into that when we get into the specifics. But so that starts with just an overview of that idea and some data. Every chapter is just filled with her referencing dozens and dozens of studies. Um, so all of this book is just very science-based. And even in some instances uh, where studies have, have shown that that Montessori approach needs to evolve or change. And that main crisis in education is, um, she calls it the empty vessel model, where if we're coming from the belief that children don't know much and adults have all the knowledge and we're, our job is to fill the children up with the knowledge that we already have, that's a... I think the essential piece there of like, that doesn't work, you know, that's, that's the conventional schooling that's based on like producing conformity and, and including a conformity of behavior and knowledge and producing, you know, like law abiding citizens and factory workers and, and stuff like that versus totally. tapping into the, the child's intrinsic learning process and curiosity. Totally. Okay, so this next chapter is the impact of movement on learning and cognition. 
So it, again, just mainly referencing a lot of studies, um, both studies that are just about the, you know, learning experiences that involve fine and gross motor, motor skills, but also acknowledging what we learned from, from Peter Gray and others that our children evolved over millions of years to be moving and to be interacting and to be learning in a, in a more dynamic way, not sitting in a desk looking at people. And we can't undo that. We can't undo that, that millions of years of evolution have resulted in kids that are built and designed to move and to learn in, a, in that way. And so Maria Montessori, who was the first um, female physician in, in Italy, is undoubtedly a, a wise, studied, and you know, just a genius. This book is called The, the, the Science Behind the Genius. Um, she understood that, and she did studies that, that demonstrated that children learn best when they can be standing while they're doing their lessons or moving around or whatever that they want to do. Yeah, it's so in Montessori, it appears to me, and I went to Montessori, preschool. I have no memories of it. I really wish that I did. And as I was reading the book, I could see how like my personality, maybe I was like that before, but like, I think Montessori is a perfect fit for my personality, or maybe my personality is kind of the way it is because I was a Montessori kiddo. I don't actually know if it would be a great fit for my daughter, um, who has a very different personality than me and goes to Waldorf school. Um, but anyway, um, the I wish I could remember the hands-on materials, but, you know, so in Montessori, you know, there, it's all about the hands-on engagement with these materials, like learning math, geography, music, everything by not through listening to a lecture or by, um, you know, reading or writing. Symbols or, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Not so it, it's a less passive way of just like receiving information and it's, it's, um, a process of engaging with materials hands-on you know with rods that are different lengths or with the pink tower or with sandpaper letters tracing you know um, sandpaper letters to get the movement of it and then apparently children spontaneously start mm -hmm. writing and beads beads for math and different colors for the different decimal places and yeah like a bead that is just like a one unit and then like a string of beads that's 10 and then a sheet of beads that's 10 by 10 and then a cube of beads that's 10 by 10 by 10. Um, those things just get kids understanding the concepts of, of math um, in a different way that they can touch and feel. and Yeah, so that it's an active engagement rather than a passive receiving, which has to do with the next one, which is choice, where you know, children are, when they're working with these rods or sandpaper letters or whatever it is, they're choosing their motions. They're, they're engaging with, you know, oh, this doesn't fit here, but it fits here. And so there's, there's choice involved there in that, that active hands-on engagement. Yeah. And this perceived control thing is, is what we were talking about earlier. Like the room is set up so that they have control, but they're, options are limited and and in the really young um ages you know there's actually very few toys and activities even out because the kids aren't ready for like more and so um so they're just controlling what are the options that these these kids have total control over what they pursue and what they learn but from this limited set of options and they aren't aware of <clears throat> you'll never see a 
a playpen or a baby gate in a Montessori classroom. Kids sit in like little chairs like this, even from from you know a few months old, rather than sitting in like high chairs strapped in. The beds for naps in the needle rooms and classrooms for Montessori schools are all floor beds, uh, mats just on the floor. The kids can enter and exit as they wish. Um, they don't strap kids into strollers or anything like that. Kids do hold hands when they walk out to the playground, but they don't, you know, leash them or anything like that. Um, and even they try and make sure that, um, unless it's like an activity, like the window to the outside that they can go in and out of like the doors and the room and stuff don't have windows to other parts of the buildings they can't see. So all of that is about perceived control that the world is uh, an environment that they are welcome is a safe environment that they are welcome to explore um, at their at their will. Yeah, and one of the most important elements of choice in the Montessori classroom, it sounds like is that children choose which materials they're going to work with, and for how long. So they might do it for the whole three hours, if they want to, or they might do it do this one for a while and then choose. And so there's this big piece about like respecting children's concentration and that they're not, you're not being told you're going to do math for 45 minutes and then music for 30 minutes and then, and then this. And so that's part of the factory model and conventional schooling is that like, you know, the children are like shuttled off to each subject, you know, like at a certain time. And in a, in a Montessori classroom, kids choose what are doing all different activities at the same time that they have chosen for themselves. How, but there's a lot of limits. And I found some of them a little like disturbing, actually. Like, um, so there are limits, which she says the research has shown that um, fewer choices leads to greater sense of perceived control. Like if you have too many choices, then it just becomes overwhelming. And like, that's how I feel about like, you know, the internet or whatever, right? It's like, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to read every book or watch every video, right? Like, what do I even, how do I live my life when there's so much out there? And so I get that that limited choices is actually, a, has a greater sense of freedom sometimes. Um, however, there's some pretty serious limits on uh apparently the children can only choose materials that they have been shown how to use and they can only use those materials in the precise way that they have been designed for their intended purpose and i'm sure this doesn't happen exactly that way in every montessori classroom and that's what she said over and over again is that the the materials are not toys they're tools not toys so like you're not going to build like a some creative blah 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 with the math materials you're going to do the mathy thing with them i think the example you're giving is actually more for the older kids because the younger kids tools at least in my montessori training are all designed to be self correcting so so they're all designed for kids to know how to do it but the older kids activities like mirror polishing jewelry polishing, um, setting the tables, uh, pouring drinks, those sorts of things. Uh, those are all, yes, skills that they only have the kids do once they've been taught how to do it. And I can see how that could feel a little restrictive. But the goal of most young Montessori toys 
are is is that the teacher doesn't even have to show them how to do it but that they kind of over time will will just see the order of the of the stack or whatever i see okay and the teacher doesn't show them you think for the really young ones i don't think so yeah i mean that wasn't my experience and there is a there is a part of the book where she says that's the that's the goal is to let kids do it wrong see for themselves the the disorder and then learn to to do it themselves right so like where the teacher isn't correcting errors the materials are self-correcting yeah to where the child learns in their own um through their own engagement with the materials but you're not going to take the like the whatever it is that you fit through the hole in the thing and like turn it into a trumpet a thing that you play with dolls yeah. right or like a trumpet or like uh you start playing with it it's like oh this is the pretend fruit at my doll's like picnic or whatever that kind of thing um yeah i'm glad that you point that out and that, that rubs you wrong and i only i only find that disturbing because and she goes into pretend play later in the book but that's like all at my my child is five about to turn six and the kids I know her age, that's all they do all day long is pretend play. Yeah. And it's not such a big thing in Montessori that's sort of like, no, no, kids don't need to do pretend play. They are, they're going to be like adding four figure math numbers or something. Right. Okay. <laughs> like, so that kind of takes us into the next chapter anyway, which is this interest in human learning. And this part does reflect what Peter Gray has studied and found in Free to Learn and I think his newest book is just the evidence behind self-directed learning or unschooling or something. Um, and that's that kids like to play and do exercises that are based in the real world, that are based in what they see their parents doing. And so um, in a Montessori school, and maybe as Kara's talking next, I'll pull up some of the video we have because we've shot hundreds of hours of video of, of Montessori schools. Um, but you'll see kids... Um, you know, some of the, the games are, like I said, like polishing a mirror, or polishing jewelry or, or setting the table. And, um, and kids seem to really enjoy doing these activities that are based in what they see their parents doing. A child-sized broom and dustpan, um, you know, washcloths and, uh, and putting things where they go and even putting their toys back when they're done playing with it. They mentioned that kids seem to really enjoy that, keeping, helping keep order uh, once they've learned to do it. So uh, I think that's what this chapter is mostly about, that the that the learning is about uh, the mirroring the things that they might see their parents do or that they would use in real life as opposed to just uh, pure fantasy play. I got a little bit bored with this chapter because I was like, of course, people learn better when they're learning something that they're interested in. And there's all these studies that show that that's true. And... Um, I love this quote that says, interest naturally leads to sustained, intrinsically guided engagement, which develops attention and concentration. Because um, that's what's really magical, right? Is like when children are just in the zone of like completely in, in, enveloped in their, in their work, in their concentration. And that apparently is what um, Montes Dr. Montessori was really going for, um, which is really fascinating to me because, um, you know, my daughter does tend to like never stop moving and, and um, be 
she can certainly concentrate on things that she's interested in and she can bounce from one thing to another. And it's so interesting, I think, when she goes into that place of just like the world falls away and I'm just entranced by what I'm doing and nothing can pull me out of it. And I do also, I love that um, this will come up again later, but, you know, I love that she talks about teachers inspiring interest or like sparking interest um, through like carefully designed presentations. So I guess in Montessori, there's like a, just a few big lessons where the teacher, one example she gives in the book is um, there's a, like a classic way that Montessori teachers present like the big bang. Mm. <laughs> and they talk about, imagine a universe where nothing exists. There's no houses, there's no mothers and fathers, there's no toys, there's no trees, there's nothing. How did all of this come to be here? And from that sort of like style of presentation that kind of inspires this wonder and awe, you know, children can, their interest can be sparked. So I appreciate that as a teacher, because after we read Peter Gray, I was sort of like, okay, I'm sort of firing myself as a teacher, because apparently children don't need adults at all to learn anything. <laughs> and so I, I, I kind of like this other side of the story where it's like, okay, adults can actually be useful <laughs> in sparking interest where children can then become fascinated with physics or, or you know, whatever kind of science things come out of that Big Bang presentation. The next chapter is extrinsic rewards and motivation. Um, this is something that's come up in at least half of the books that we've read. <clears throat> so we won't belabor the subject, but it's still surprising to me how kind of rare it is. Like my son just yesterday was working with a, um, like an OT, like an occupational therapist and a speech language pathologist, something like someone doing both of those, that kind of work. And <clears throat> over and over again, she was like, good job, good job. And <clears throat> so I think it's still rare for people to have grasped this concept. And I still do it myself. I just can't help it. I, it's like my knee-jerk reaction when I feel proud of something he did. I say things like that. And every book we're reading says it's not good for them. And there's this great post in that Montessori at Home video that I showed where a, a, a mom teaches about, about how, how her kid learned this Montessori tool without ever asking her whatever, just by playing with it for a few months, doing it totally wrong. And then a few months, like looking through it like a telescope and then whatever. And then eventually did it right. And she's like, my favorite thing is I felt so like proud and relieved that he finally figured out how to assemble this right. My favorite thing is he looks at it, he kind of claps and he never looks up at me. He never, he never, he's just happy. It's just him and the, and the, the toy. Uh, which goes back to what also what Kara was just talking about with like kind of being in the zone and yes it's kind of like it's it's as much research as there is that shows that rewards take away motivation and that then when you take the rewards away the the activity itself is devalued you know there's just study after study showing that even something that a person was interested in originally after a reward is initiated once the reward goes away then they're no longer interested in the activity and it it's but it's it's like it's a whole different 
universe, right? Like no grades, no evaluation, no honor rolls, no stickers, no candy. No, I'm, I'm like amazed by, um, one of my daughter's best friends is our neighbor. Who's like 10, maybe 11 now who goes to a conventional public school. And the things she says about her classroom are crazy to me. Like they get candy at school for like this, that, or the other. And I'm like, first of all, please do not give my child like candy full of like high fructose corn syrup and food coloring without my permission. And B, oh my God, I just can't believe that it's still happening after all this research. It's everywhere. It's constant. It's like, it's at swim lesson. It's in school. It's, it's like, and that comes from a belief that children will not or cannot do something valuable without being manipulated. That That's what's underlying that. Yeah, it is, uh, in my opinion, a lack of respect for the child and, and their their intrinsic ability to, to motivate and, and yeah. But the, the shame is that it's not just, it's not just that it's not just manipulating that it, it steals their joy for the things that they do love. It, it's completely counterproductive. And in the short term, it seems productive and kids do get excited about stars and they do like these, these rewards do work, but it shifts the motivation from the activity itself to the star, to the gold star, to the praise, to the other things. So it seems to work, but it, but just study after study after study from 20 different books we've read have shown that it's, it's actually in the long run, it's, it's pulling away their, their intrinsic joy and intrinsic motivation. And then all they're looking for is stars and they don't know what lights them up. I actually have a real, like an example of this. I have a student in my, in my violin student in my studio who I've, I've pondered about and puzzled about for a long time because they practice every day. And yet they don't seem to somehow like really engage on the level to where they make progress in like a deeper way. And I, and I just happened to hear once that they said um, that in their house, they only get dessert if they practice. So if you want dessert, you got to practice your instrument. And I was like, oh, I get it now how this student can play their instrument every day, but there's something superficial about their, their progress. And it made perfect sense to me that like, if they're just going through the motions because they kind of have to, or because they want to ha have ice cream later, um, they're not making the same kind of developments that they, that they would otherwise. Yeah. So actually their progress is undermined by this reward system. Yeah. Um, and, and their parents may not even know that because their parents aren't musicians, you know? So like I have to get, then go, okay, maybe I need to educate my studio and all the parents. And that to me is a, um, I'm going on a little bunny hole here. Sorry. But like when it comes to other people, parenting, you know, everybody does their thing that they believe is right. And it's difficult for me to go to other parents who have more children than me and older ages than me and say, here's what I think is best. Well, I guess it's not, here's what I think is best. It's like, here's what the research shows actually. Yeah. 
Yeah, I felt that same way about the the o, o, OT or or speech language pathologist that was working with my son. It's like, of course, she's an expert. She knows what she's doing. How do I just like give this little tidbit that might be a con contribution for her and for my son without being insulting or something like that? I didn't. I don't. I don't know how to do it, so I didn't do it. But I'm still thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think you, I mean, it is your position as a teacher to, to do that stuff and you hold it lightly and you honor the parents, you know, rights to do what they choose for themselves. But here's this bit of information. If you think it's useful, here's some books you can read if you want to. Yeah. Right. I could at least just present the information Yeah. and, you know, there's something in here that is also important too, where she says, you know, of course there's no grades, no evaluations, no rewards or punishments. But they do, teachers do give descriptive feedback. So it's not like there's no interaction there. Like one of her examples was a teacher might simply write, um, you used a lot of short words and not very many long words. So there's no, there's actually not an evaluation there. I mean, there is maybe a sense of like, I would like you to use more longer words, but it's just descriptive feedback. So, and that's what I'm working on doing in my teaching, you know, instead of saying good job or whatever, I might say like, you did it. Or I might say, oh, that fourth finger really, um, I heard the ringtone. Or it's like giving descriptive feedback is useful when it doesn't have like the evaluation wrapped all in it. And this book does also briefly mention that if a child comes to you asking for feedback or asking for praise, that that is the exception, that that is like an appropriate time to give praise or feedback. And even to share like your experience, like I've had lots of people tell me like, oh, but if you're, if you're just feeling like gushing over your child, like you don't want to withhold that, you want to express it. And honestly, I do want to withhold it because I feel like if he's in his own I'm like making it about me and I'm, sh and I'm interrupting his, his process. And I do want to withhold that. But if he ever comes to me asking, then I think it's, it's, it's great for me to just say like, I'm so proud of you. I'm so excited to watch you do this. And just like, let all that stuff out that I've been like <laughs> penting up or whatever. Yeah. Because sometimes he does something and then he brings it to me to show it to me. And then like, that's the time when you can just say, I loved watching you do that. I loved watching you do that. Yeah. And like, look at that dark blue next to the, that pink color or whatever versus like, yeah, what a pretty picture or something like that. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So extrinsic rewards and motivation. If you're more interested in that, the, the kind of seminal book on that is Uncon uh, Unconditional Parenting, which we, we've previously reviewed. So you can look at that. And well, and Athlete Cones, we didn't review Punished by Rewards. That's his book that is all about um, intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. For both adults and kids, for managers and businesses. And yeah. Yeah. Cool. So next, uh, the next chapter is Learning from Peers. Oh, wait, I think we skipped one. We skipped the executive function. Oh, I'm looking at the Google Books and it doesn't show a chapter on executive function, but I might be looking at an earlier edition and, and you've got the third edition. Ooh, maybe so. Yeah, so go ahead and talk about executive function. 
Yeah, executive function. So I'm really interested in this as a person with ADHD. Um, executive function is the term for like um, the mental activities like planning, prioritizing, uh, focusing, directing one's attention, like choosing what you're going to focus on. Like um, I don't have any trouble focusing when I get wrapped up in something, but I have trouble making a conscious choice about what I'm going to focus on, I'll end up focusing on something that's maybe not that important or, or time sensitive or whatever. But, but anyway, so she talks about um, um, children developing their ability to, to concentrate and to like, peacefully work in a in a pleasurable way and be content in their work by their own choice. Um, so it's this, I, I kind of, I often bristle when at the term self-control, because I generally think, you know, coming from a radical honesty background that like we tend to be overly controlled, like in our culture. And so this was a, I liked this sort of different way of thinking about it, of self-control being more about, less about inhibiting one's, you know, feelings or behaviors or whatever to be more socially appropriate self-control as uh as being having the ability to direct my own attention and part and she also says that empathy is part of that because being able to direct your attention to someone else's experience when you're having your own experience that may be different that that's where empathy comes from great um, the ability to to pay attention to both at once, like what's happening for me and what's happening for somebody else. So the great thing here is, you know, she talks about that children can really enjoy precision and order and repetition, that these are natural human tendencies. And this is what is so crucial to me as a music teacher is that in order to play an instrument well, the child has to have an intrinsic, you know, pull towards being um, precise and and towards um, developing mastery, right? Like you kind of can't fake it on the violin or the viola. Um, there's no button to press. There's no like easy way out. You, you have to be, it's a deeper process. And so what I thought was so cool is she talks about, um, like you said earlier, Tony, that the materials, the Montessori materials are self-correcting. So there's no like teacher hovering over saying if it's right or wrong. There's no like, the, the, the child is learning on their own through engaging with the materials in this precise you know, way and that self-development occurs spontaneously in this carefully prepared environment. So it's not that the adults are just absent, it's that the adults have set up this carefully prepared environment where the children can learn on their own. And what we didn't say in the choice part is that the, apparently the research shows, they call it the Goldilocks effect, that children will choose an activity that's just right for their developmental level. They won't choose something that's too simple and they won't cho choose something that's too complex 
because then it just kind of feels random to them if it's beyond there. So they choose the activity that's just right for what they need. And that's where our trust and respect comes in of like, they, the child knows what's most interesting to them is also probably most valuable to them. And the important part for me as a teacher is that um, where she talked about that errors are not corrected by the teacher. The child will eliminate errors themselves through repetition and continued engagement. And so they're developing their own um, inner guidance and their like courage to, to do things on their own. Yeah, that's more like based in just trusting the child. Yeah. And then there's one other thing I want to say about this chapter, which is that um, she talks about some studies that um, show that this ability to concentrate, which we could also call mindfulness, right? So she's, and she talks about mindfulness in the chapter, and there are some mindfulness activities that, that happen in the Montessori classroom, um, where if we define mindfulness as just like paying attention to the activity that one is presently engaged in, that that is happiness. Like that's when people feel happy is when you're paying attention to what you are presently engaged with. So I love that. Yeah, I think it's a big reason why those of us who are musicians, part of why we are musicians, like when you are, it's an activity that when you're really into it, you cannot be half-assing it. You have to have every ounce of your brain be focused on it and your body is also doing it. And I still haven't read that book, Flow, by... I think you pronounce his name Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Um, but that book is all about that too. It's just about like when basketball players are just totally in the zone or when a chef is totally in the zone and just like every every bit of their mind and body is is concentrated, orchestrated, meditating on this activity and that it is like the joy, most joyful state that we have. Mm. Magical, yeah. Yeah, and kids are better at that than us because they're better at not being distracted and Montessori structure is all about wiring their brains so that they aren't easily distracted. I think we'll probably get into that more in later things, but uh, yeah, actually like oh, order and environment in mind is the, is the chapter most focused on that. So we'll just go on to learning from peers. One kind of unexpected takeaway was... Um, Angeline Stoll Lillard references a study that, that the traditional knowledge is just like the smaller the classroom, the higher the teacher to student ratio, the better the learning experience. And she says that that breaks down when you really encourage peer learning. And when you mix ages and have, you can have these bigger classrooms where older kids are teaching younger kids and, um, and that larger classrooms don't show a, a, a cost in um, in learning and performance, and she and like I want my child engaging with kids of different age, and I generally want him with older kids because I feel like he gets the benefit them then of them modeling and teaching and and demonstrating things that he can't do. But this chapter also goes a lot into how really the best way to like really remember things and and retain them is to teach them to other people. So. 
So the benefit doesn't just go in one direction. It really goes in both directions when peers are learning from each other. It also teaches empathy and reinforces reinforces that caring and community, um, reinforces like meaningful connections between kids, mutual support, yeah, building community. So uh, yeah, that's just part of the ethos of Montessori and uh, was a good good chapter. I see this with my daughter a lot where in there's things that she will do in a social environment when she's with other children that she just simply is not willing to do or interested in doing when she's by herself, you know, where like there's something about that social context, especially when there's older kids, because the younger ones look up to the older ones and they have a sense of like, Ooh, when I get to do this, then I'm doing something the older children do. And there's a sense of, you know, it's not a grade, it's not an evaluation, but there's this sense of like, I'm like moving up in the world or something. Mm -hmm. Totally. The next chapter is meaningful contexts for learning. I think that kind of, uh, we've already spoken about that. It's, it's just that you want the learning to be not just about rote memorization or something like that, but about it's meaningful to them because it's, it's a topic they're interested in or it makes them feel more confident in navigating the world and it, 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 it's meaningful for the community, it's meaningful uh, in, in any range of ways. So Montessori curriculum and Montessori practice is very aimed at making sure that the learning is, is meaningful. And um, okay, next is adult interaction styles and child outcomes. <clears throat> So the main thing I remember from this is Kara and I have been really into attachment science lately. We recently read a book called Strange Situation, and I just recently took a three-day training from um, Diane Poole Heller and have been just reading more and more. I did a radical honesty meetup last night uh, where it was all about uh, integrating attachment um, and and radical honesty work. So uh, this this section, the part of it that really stuck out for me is that it mentions, you know, that if you are a young child, maybe being raised by young parents or parents that are going through their own stuff and just aren't really fully emotionally available and engaged for their with their kids, kids can develop these um, avoidant attachment styles where they, they just don't trust and don't want to be engaged with others. And that really can pose problems for future relationships. They can, they can develop um, anxious or, or um, anxious attachment styles where they never quite have enough because they aren't getting as much attention as they want disorganized where they have threats that are associated with with that and and this this chapter mentions attachment science and mentions that a, an engaged Montessori teacher modeling secure attachment and safety um, can give a child a sense and a predisposition to secure attachment even in situations where they aren't getting that from their parents, which for the rest of their life can change and alter the way that they interact with people and the, the, the success of future relationships and friendships that they have. So um, it's a, yeah, it's a, especially if that's at a young age, a, a child going into a, into a K2 or Nido kind of um, classroom, teachers have an opportunity to just make this, profound difference in the attachment style of, of children. Wow. Uh, and then ninth or 10th in the third edition was order in environment and mind. So 
One of the things that was neat with this is they mentioned how like most classrooms and even bedrooms that parents have set up for their kids, like my bedroom, it's kind of got a lot of posters. Like his changing table has has a map of the world, hoping that he'd be interested in geography. Um, other areas have like these feelings things. He loves pointing to them, and and um, other walls have just photos of his family and and and. They have studies that they reference in this chapter saying, like, the more of that stuff, the harder it is for the child later in life to just concentrate and the more distractible the, the, your child is. And so they design these Montessori rooms to be sparse and to be uh, to not have things all over the walls and not have a whole lots of bright bright colors everywhere but you know the traditional Montessori room looks like pretty bland and then there's like a, a woodblock stacking toy that has colors or something like that and just drives the kids attention to this like one one thing so this isn't my specialty uh personally uh and I kind of wish that the that the science was in the other direction that was just like the more freedom and the more the more chaos they have the less like you know rain manish they end up and needing things to be but uh just over and over again this talked about consistent sleep schedules consistent um consistent and expect you know anticipate where the kids can expect and anticipate what's coming next and then the less clutter in their in their world in their room in their environment uh the better their learning uh tends to be yeah i'm not so good at this one either i mean i will say you know, and she says in this chapter that speaking of order in terms of routines and stuff at home, that just the big events are the important ones, meals, bedtime, that kind of thing. And I think we're doing, I'm doing pretty well with that, with my daughter, just around meals and bedtime, the big stuff, right? And certain routines about like, you know, when we go to school or pick her up from school and she goes to her dad's house for the same amount of time on the same days every week. There's a lot of routines that we do have, but in terms of the order of the environment, whoo, one of the books I want to read um, with you one day, Tony, is Simplicity Parenting. And because um, I don't know, we have a small house and I get a lot of hand-me-downs and I'm kind of a cheapskate. So I keep everything and like, um, until I can find someone else to give it to, or I don't like to throw things away if they can still be used. And, uh, you know, so like her, my daughter's room has way too much crap in it, just way too much. And I'm like, oh man, it's so not Montessori in here, you know, or Waldorf classrooms are the same way. Waldorf classrooms are, you know, um, really calm and peaceful and like everything's wooden or wool or, you know, fabric and there's nature tables and there's special paint on the walls that doesn't look like regular paint that's just kind of flat. They have this special painting technique that looks kind of misty or cloudy or something. And so I um, I would like to do a little overhaul on uh, our, our chaotic, you know, home situation with just like toys everywhere and right now my daughter's into legos and her room her whole room is just like you can't walk through it it's just covered in legos i wish i had a bigger house sometimes just for that purpose because yeah it's 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 hard in a little 865 square foot house to to have all the stuff that i want him to have and then for things to not be cluttered but 
I'm working on it. And I've got his closet set up so that I can rotate toys in and out. And uh, I also got those little bookshelves where you can, where you see just like two or three books at a time instead of like his big bookshelves where he just pulls all the books out and lets them drop on the floor. So yeah, I'm working on it. It'll be a, it'll be a compromise between my learned nature and what I think, what I've learned is best for, for him. Yeah. Okay, so the last chapter is Education for Children. Um, that's chapter 11 in, in the third edition. Uh, what do you want to say about that one? Yeah, I'm, I was surprised by that whole thing at the beginning where she talks about, you know, that for some developmental psychologists, they believe school is like not that important compared to parents, which I get it. But at the same time, I'm not going to send my child someplace like six hours a day, five days a week that doesn't align with my parenting values you know just i'm just not going to do it um and maybe that's what they're saying is that the parents who do choose to send their it's hard to separate the effects of the parenting versus the schooling that certain types of parents choose so she spends a lot of time in this chapter talking about random assignment and she finally designs a study the author designed her own study that um deals with a public Montessori school where it's a lottery to get in. And so there's lots of parents who are wanting to send their children to the school, but only like 36 get in every year. And then a whole bunch of other kids go to other schools, even though their parents selected Montessori. And so she compares those children over a long time. And um, there were better outcomes on like social measures and cognitive measures for the Montessori children. She also talks a lot about the, the problems in research with um, programs being really, really different and some programs being more pure Montessori and then a lot of programs calling themselves Montessori, but not necessarily being completely aligned with the original Montessori, you know, ways. Hmm. Yeah, good. I, I, another friend recently recommended a book that argues that that point that that schools and even to some extent what parents do doesn't make that big a difference. So, uh, you know, again, I don't, I guess that would let us off the hook quite a bit, but I don't, I, I, I want to read it just to understand the, the perspective. But, uh, but like I've said before too, a, a lot of what I do in parenting and trying to be the best parent I can be is naturally because I want to give my child the happiest life possible and every every kind of like advantage you can possibly have but a lot of it is just because it's how i want to live anyway and i use my parenting as a way to be more conscious and deliberate than i would have the discipline to be if it were just for me so a lot of this stuff is is both for me and for him and even if i learned that it only makes very minor differences I just want to be careful in my parenting with my child. And I know that like my natural programming and my natural instincts and, and what I've learned, you know, the habits, some of the habits that I built aren't really aligned with how I want to be with the people that I care about in my life. And sometimes my knee jerk reactions to things aren't how I would be if I want to be deliberate. And so I like having a relationship with my child that, fosters me being really deliberate and really, really intentional with, with how I am being with him. Yeah. Yeah. 
I appreciate you for saying all that. I, yeah, I feel the same way. Like in my, my parenting fascination, you know, it's like, it's a lot about me. It's like, yeah, I do want to um, give my daughter the best, you know, chance of being happy and free and creative and productive in her life, you know? And um, as Brad says, so Brad Blanton, the, the founder of Radical Honesty and the author of Radical Parenting, um, he often says, you know, we need to figure out a way to just interfere less with our kids so that we don't, we can raise them without damaging them quite so much. So it's less about like us doing to them as like, um, what, how I think of it is like, I'm trying not to pass on my conditioning to my daughter. And I know that I will, because the very, the very conditioning that's most unconscious for me is what I'm going to pass on to her because I'm not yet conscious of it. And so I feel like in my, in my relationship with my daughter is probably the most intense and most intimate relationship in my life. And so that's the place where I get to um, shine the light on things that just, they don't come to the surface in other situations. That's the place where like my most early stuff, my most early childhood stuff that I haven't worked out yet is, is going to come to the surface. So that's my, my opportunity to look, take a look at it, you know, and work through stuff that I don't think I could work through in any other place. Yeah. Well, good. Well, any other closing thoughts on this? Thank you, Angeline Stolillard. And thank you um, uh, for the people who recommended this book to me. Uh, the, the, when I did work for a, a local Montessori school called Family Star Montessori, that really has a lot of focus on working with special needs kids and, and having a lot of diversity in the classrooms. Um, I had just my I had just built my nonprofit into this this thing that I wanted to be doing with my life and and a tool for my own self actualization and it was the first time I ever thought like maybe this isn't the best way to make the positive impact I want to make in the world what this school is doing is uh is the first thing I've come across that like gave me pause and thought like these people are making a huge difference in the world uh, so yeah, I'm really grateful for reading the book. I'm grateful for all the Montessori schools and teachers, and uh, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, but I love that now that I'm a father, I get to incorporate some of this. Yeah. Beautiful. I could see you as a Montessori teacher, Tony. <laughs> yeah. I Maybe for a little, maybe for a little homeschool group. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I so appreciate reading this book. Um, like it kind of balances for me like I said before, like the, the stuff that we've learned about unschooling and Peter Gray and all of that, this, this balances out for me where I, as, as an adult and a parent and a teacher where I can participate in my child's learning, like where it gives me a little doorway into like, you know, um, and it's still about respecting the child's intrinsic drive and interest and all of that but that I can have some influence that I can spark interest that I can um, design environments or materials in a way where children will um, be able to learn just by engaging with them 
and so yeah i'm i i enjoyed delving into this this sort of balancing act between non-interference and staying out of the way and you know participating in a in a helpful way that still supports children's intrinsic motivation awesome all right. Well, thank you for joining us for the Radical Parenting Podcast. We'll be back next week with another another parenting book. Uh, and please comment and, and add any feedback you can below. We'll see you soon. Bye.